It's good to see a pretty good crowd of people back here at the gym, so it's nice. So, as we get started this morning, I just wanted to make a comment about the world that we live in today. There's no shortage of things going on around us that has the propensity to cause us to be discouraged, is there? Anybody been disheartened or discouraged when they look around the world at all the things that are going on? What are some of the things that are going on around us in our culture today that discourage you or may have the propensity to dishearten you? Political stuff. Rioting. Immorality. Social media. Just media. And social media. You know, it seems like the fabric of our society is being torn apart everywhere we look. The traditional family is under attack, probably like never before. It used to be that divorce and the women's liberation movement seemed to be the big issue as undermining the family. Now, that's almost minuscule to the attacks that are going on now. We have the gay and lesbian and, and transgender community. It's just the tip of the iceberg. We have crime. We have the police being defunded and attacked. That's the fabric of our society, the justice system. We've got the government reaching into our personal lives more and more. The media and censorship is going on like never before. And we've just come through a pandemic that has caused all kinds of havoc on our society and economy. And who knows what the consequence of this unlimited amount of printing money is going to do to our culture down the road. And as we think about that, these are only newer things. We still have millions of unborn babies that are being slaughtered. We have all kinds of things that have been going on. These are just some of the newer things that we've thrown on top of that. We still have Christians around the world being persecuted for their faith. And I could go on and on and on. So these are truly difficult times. And yet, if history has anything to teach us, it teaches us that this is nothing new. What did Solomon say in Ecclesiastes 1.9? There's nothing new under the sun. He said, what has been will be done again. Job 5.7 says, Yet man is born into trouble as sure as sparks fly upward. That's pretty sure. Many times we feel like things are getting worse, and yet the truth is, times have always been bad because we live in a sin-stained world. Throughout history, mankind has always lived in difficult times. It does wax and wane, but it's always been difficult. This morning and next week, we are going to look at the first John, the few first few verses of first John, if you want to be turning there. And if you know anything about first John, or in fact, most of any of the letters of the New Testament, there were difficult times going on then as well. They were writing to people who were going through difficult times. And so the writers of the New Testament were always trying to encourage and help their listeners to find their place in this difficult world, to teach them how to relate to it, 
how to deal with the affairs of the culture and the times, how to explain to them their duty as believers in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and how they could even have joy even while living in such a difficult environment. These are some of the questions that John is going to address in his letter. This morning we're going to look at the verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, and we'll begin to see John has an answer for this question of how to live in difficult times. So let's begin by reading John, 1 John 1, and I'll read the first four verses. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete." We're not told directly, but almost every scholar agrees that the author of this epistle is the Apostle John. When he was a young man, along with his brother James, they had some nicknames. Do you remember what they were? Everybody knows that, don't they? Sons of Thunder. Kind of paints a picture of, in your mind of what John might have been like as a young man. But by this time, as he pens these words... He's mellow and he's matured. And now, in fact, he is probably an old man. Many of us know what that's like. The zest and youth and vigor of youth give way. You know, that impulsiveness of youth kind of gives way to a maturity as we grow older. And that's how it was with John. John is also now the lone survivor of all the apostles. He's been through a lot in his lifetime and since he met Christ and he became a follower and an apostle, he's seen and heard and witnessed a whole lot. And in his old age, his approach is now that of a loving father, maybe even of a grandfather. He calls his listeners little children several times in his writing. He's witnessed so much and he's not unaware how difficult life is for the believers in his day. Turn over to chapter 5 and look at verse 19 with me of this same book. Chapter 5, verse 19. John says there, he says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John is acutely aware that the world was and is under the influence of Satan. And he, along with the people of the world, were opposed to God and his children and would do everything possible to drag them down. They live, as well as we live, you know, in a world that is opposed to us, is opposed to the gospel, is opposed to Christ. And yet John and the other disciples, nor Jesus, in their teaching, ever taught us it was our calling to reform the world, that our quest in life was to chase social reform. But neither did they teach us to turn our backs on it. 
We are not told to become hermits and escape and to live in monasteries. Have you noticed that it seems that human nature kind of migrates to extremes? That's been the case for the church as well. There's times that the church retreated and withdrew and there's times where the church set out to be reformers even by violence. But the teaching of this epistle as well as the whole New Testament avoids these two extremes. The Bible does not teach a program of world improvement. Neither does it teach a world of renunciation. But Scripture teaches us to acknowledge the spiritual battle going on around us and to live within this world, but to rise above it, to not be influenced by it. We are to defeat it in our own lives, to prevail against it. We are not allow the difficulties of living in this sin-stained world to steal our joy. And we're going to find that this is one of the main themes in Scriptures, and it's also one of the main themes in First John. It's not the main theme. In 1 John 5.13, John says he's written these things that, that you may know you have eternal life. That's probably the main theme of 1 John. He wants us to have assurance of our salvation. But one of the other themes that prevails through this is that is the theme of having joy. Again, verse 4. Our primary theme of these verses says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the verses before it that we're going to look at were written so that our joy may be complete. He tells us that's the result. That's the reason he's saying these things. So even though we live in a world ruled by evil and the evil one, even though there's crime and chaos and persecution and injustice and all manner of tribulation, he's telling us that we can have an abundant, joy-filled life. That's what our goal is as believers. And it's not isolated to this. We know Paul taught it often. What did he say in Philippians? Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. James said in his verse, he's spoken, what did he say? He said, in trials and tribulations, consider it all joy when you encounter them. And even Jesus himself in John 15:11 said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full or complete. It's not only impossible, it is expected of us to have joy even in a world consumed by chaos, disappointments, discouragements, whatever is going on around us. And that's what this older saint of God wants to impress upon his reader first as he begins this letter. And it doesn't get any clearer than this. I'm writing these things so that your joy may be complete. So in these opening three verses, he does this by reminding his readers of three truths about Jesus that fuel this kind of joy. You're going to see in verse 1 the truth about who he is talking about Jesus. Verse 2, the truth about what He reveals. And verse 3, the truth about what He makes possible. So before we get any deeper, we need to define joy. What exactly is joy? I went to the good old Webster's Dictionary. They still have one. It's just online now. And I went to the Webster's Dictionary and looked up what it said. I was a little bit shocked, but here's what it says. And I say... You dare not go to the dictionary to define this word biblically because it is very inaccurate. It says, 
that the definition of joy is emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. The prospect of possessing what one desires. A state of happiness or bliss. A source or cause of delight. I can tell you right now, biblically, that is totally inaccurate. That might be the world's view of joy, and that's why it's so fleeting, but that's not the definition of biblical joy. What is biblical joy? Anybody? Joy in the Lord. There's no way you can have it, and that's kind of what John is going to be saying here. You can't have true, real, biblical joy without the Lord being involved, and we're going to see that clearly as we move forward. I would I kind of summed it up as when, when I thought through Scripture and all that. I mean, you take the Apostle Paul even, for instance. Paul was in prison, beaten, persecuted, and what was he doing? Singing, praising the Lord. That's real joy because it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with his circumstances. It's something that comes from with inside of you that is not dependent upon circumstances that are going on around you. So when you go to Scripture to define this term, you take that and other examples in Scripture, and we learn that it's something that we can have, and yet we can still be burdened by sorrow and grief and have joy at the same time. That wasn't in the definition of Webster's. So when taken in the context of the overall teaching of Scripture, I'd suggest that real joy in some part has to do with a deep inner feeling of complete and total satisfaction that is not dependent upon any outside forces such as circumstances. It is dependent and arises from one source. It comes from knowing the living God, being in fellowship with Him, and knowing nothing can separate you from Him and His love. That, in a nutshell, is what John is saying here in the first three opening verses of his letter. Look at verse 1 and we'll see the first truth he shares that fuels this kind of overflowing joy that he wants us to have and the truth about who Jesus is. Let me read verse 1 again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. As I studied this, I noticed immediately that there's no introduction to this letter. When you think about all the other letters that were written, most of them have some type of letter. James, Peter, Paul, they always almost introduced themselves, the apostle or something like that. John in his other letters actually does say, you know, the elder, you know, two, and he goes into a little bit of an introduction. And this one he does not. I take it that he was so eager to share that he just jumped right into this truth that he had learned. We know from the entirety of this section that he almost assuredly was talking about Jesus, about who he really was. He calls Jesus that which was from the beginning. What is he saying in essence when he says that which was from from the beginning? What is he saying about who Jesus is? He's eternal. He is the eternal. He is God. That was a very critical statement that he was making. doesn't necessarily seem like a big deal to us, but for them at that time, for him to say that was a very radical statement. He was in a sense saying Jesus is God. Now remember, he's an old man now, but he's not lost his mind. He's not senile. He doesn't have dementia. He's still active in ministry, especially in writing. 
And he remembers the events of his life and the time he spent with Jesus. And I thought about that. I thought, I wondered what events in John's life probably stood out in his mind. Have you ever thought back over your life and tried to remember things? If you're like me, a lot of it you've forgotten. But some of it really stands out. There's certain events in your life that stand out and had an impact on you and an influence on you. And I thought about that. What things might have contributed to John's thinking as he wrote this? And I think one of the events was in Mark chapter 4. Turn there. Mark chapter 4. You're going to recognize this story. But it was an event that happened in John's life that I think is worth rehashing for a second. We want to look at verses 35 through 41. You'll know it as the story that of Jesus calming a storm. Let me read that. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, did you get a picture in your mind of this event? Jesus, after ministering all day, teaching all day, healing all day long, was tired. And he climbed into the boat and he laid down in the stern of the boat and he went to sleep. It's a good picture of Jesus' humanity, isn't it? He was tired. He fell right to sleep. He was a man. How many of you have been to Israel? Anybody in this group? Quite a few of you. Do you remember being in Capernaum and seeing the boat that they had excavated? And that was a real picture of what this boat, they called it the Jesus boat, I think was the title of it. I have a picture of it in our album at home. It wasn't much more than a big wooden rowboat. So I've got a picture in my mind of this big wooden rowboat with 13 big fishermen in this boat and Jesus laying in the stern of the boat asleep. Literally, he was at their feet. He wasn't off in a compartment somewhere. He was basically laying at their feet, sound asleep. And Mark said, a violent storm arose. Again, the sea was a place of real conformity, comfortability, I guess, with these men. They'd been fishing on it many times. They knew it well. And they also knew that storms could come up between the mountains and the wind would, would rise quickly and sometimes caught them off guard. And that's what happened here. And as the storm whipped up and these big, strong fishermen became fearful, it says, And they became fearful because it was a real danger. The rain was beating. The waves, it says, was pouncing over the boat. The boat was filling with water. I can see them taking buckets and dumping the water out. And they were afraid for their lives. And Jesus was asleep on the stern of the boat. I'm sure they kept looking and hoping. Can he hear the storm? Won't he wake up? Can't you picture this in your mind? And finally, as the 
their predicament got to a certain point where they felt like they couldn't wait any longer. They shook him. They woke him up. And as he wakes up, it says that Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, said, Peace, be still. And immediately it all stopped. The sea went calm. And it says he had looked at the disciples with a gaze. You know, I think a gaze, you know, he looked at the disciples. It doesn't say it there. I guess maybe in my mind I picture him looking at them and he, he gazed at them and peered and then he said, and I think, you know, can you really feel the expression that the disciples probably had? It says that they became fearful of who? Jesus. Where did the fear of the waves and the storm go? Instantly stopped. Now there was something, someone more to be afraid, more fearful than the storm. This man, Jesus. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And Mark says they were filled with great fear. I think this was a light bulb moment for John. I think the light bulb started going off in his mind. If it hadn't already, I think it definitely did then as he witnessed this man have control over nature. And that's what I think, that along with some other things, is what was going through his mind when he wrote these words in 1 John that we're reading. It's not some abstract teaching. He uh, is, has come to understand the truth about who Jesus is. And that is what fuels a Christian's ability to have a joy-filled life. John was an eyewitness. He had seen, he had touched, he had heard on that boat in the storm, on the Mount of Transfiguration, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the cross, at the tomb, after the resurrection, at His ascension. All these things John has witnessed and touched and been a part of. Remember the words he wrote in John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. One of the truths that John wants his readers to know is that Jesus was God. And there was no ambiguity in his statement. He knows it. He's been there. He's witnessed it. He knows this is a a fact and a truth. In fact, John himself, what did he say about himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. He was special. He was close. He was part of that inner circle. John interacted with the sovereign creator of the world, the Holy One in which no one could look upon because of His holiness. The God that told Moses to take off his sandals. Yeah. Yeah, Take off your sandals that He's on holy ground. The God that had blinded Saul on the road to Damascus. John said, I have seen, I have looked upon and touched Him. Only one could claim that truth. Jesus was from the beginning. That's why he goes on to proceed to call Him the Word of Life. He calls Him the Word of Life. All life comes from Him. Nothing is is that hasn't become. Have you ever thought about that? 
There is nothing that is that hasn't become outside of the Trinity. Everything else has become and is becoming. We are continuing to become. I can look in the mirror and see that. Every part of the earth and creation is still becoming. Only thing that has never become is the eternal Trinity. It's amazing. And that's what one of the aspects of word of life means. There's so much in this that we could talk about it for hours. The word of life encompasses so much. It also can refer to the gospel, the word of life. Jesus brought the word of life. He brought and he revealed what the gospel would become. He was the word. This is the living word. John came to understand who Jesus really was and it changed his life. Truth number one that fuels a Christian joys is the truth about who Jesus really is. Every serious question about life begins with this truth. Every person will ultimately deal with the question of who is this man Jesus. And no one has the ability to have real abundant joy without knowing the giver of life itself, the God-man Jesus Christ. We'll discuss the impact of this more in a moment. Let's move on to truth number two. From verse 2, the truth about what Jesus reveals. Verse 2 says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The word manifest, of course, means revealed. God was and is revealed through Jesus Christ. Before Christ came, Scripture tells us that no one really knew God. John 6.46 says that not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. And chapter 1, verse 18 of this letter, John says no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, the Son, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Jesus said, if you have seen Me, you have seen what? The Father. Jesus revealed God to mankind. He revealed the gospel. He revealed God's plan of salvation. He revealed himself to the world. The answers all men are looking for are found in Jesus. Eternal life is only found in Jesus. The answer to how to live in a sin-stained world is found in his word. And Jesus is the word. Jesus is the answer to all these questions. And John is making a bold declaration. God revealed himself directly to him and the other disciples. And John says that he is proclaiming to you, to us, this revelation, this manifestation. Think about all the ways that men and women are striving for purpose and meaning in this life. What are some of the ways that people are, are trying to find happiness in this life? Money. Money. Job. Job. Power, popularity, relationships, parents, entertainment, just trying to fill their life with things that they think are going to make them happy. And all of us, to a certain point, can fall into this trap. Maybe not completely, but let's don't minimize it. We can all sometimes fall into trying to find things that make us happy and maybe get out of focus at times in our life. And that's what John is trying 
to show here is that none of those things will work. What fuels a joy-filled life is knowing who Christ is and knowing what He has revealed about God and His plans and purposes for us. It's a very important concept, this concept of being manifested or being revealed. Scripture says at the right moment in time, God manifested Himself to mankind through His Son. He didn't just reveal who He was in sense that He was God. John uses the term Word of Life because it encompasses everything about our existence. He revealed His true identity. He revealed who God is and what He's like. He revealed how mankind can come to know God. He revealed the nature of sin and God's holiness. He revealed the means of salvation. He revealed everything concerning life and how to have it. Eternal life in Scripture is not just something we have in the future. It's something that we can possess now. When it refers to eternal life, it's not just about the time in heaven. Eternal life is something you possess from the moment you know God. Have you ever been to a reveal party? You know what I'm saying when I say a reveal party? Kids nowadays, it's kind of popular with the younger kids when they get have a baby and they get pregnant and they have a reveal party and they don't tell anybody who the what, what the sex of the baby is and they they end up doing weird things like coloring the cake pink or blue or doing something with balloons or all kinds of crazy things and at some the right moment then they reveal. I don't know why I've even thought about this. It has nothing to do with our text, but that that is. You know, God revealed the nature of life when He gave His Son and sent His Son into the world. He revealed the true and only way of eternal life. Unfortunately, many rejected Him and still are. That's unfortunate. And these people will never know what real joy is. Many people are chasing it and have no comprehension of how to catch it because they're not going to ever acknowledge Christ as the one who's the giver of it. One of the things that stood out to me in this text was the excitement that I heard in John's voice. When you read his words, you can hear the eagerness, the joy in John's voice as he proclaims how he came to learn this truth. And he still has it today. He's an old man today. And yet he's never lost his enthusiasm or his excitement. The joy it brought to him, he now wants others to have. And that's one of the marks of a true believer is that they want other people to have what they have. John has been serving the Lord for decades, maybe 60 years or more, and he's not lost his zeal for the Lord. John, as well as all the writers of the Old and New Testament, participated in revealing who Christ was, and it is by their participating in the writing of and recording of Scripture they, they even reveal it to us. So the first truth that fuels our joy is the knowledge of who Jesus is. The second truth that fuels our joy is what He reveals. And as I said, we could expand upon these truths for many, many hours, but we really need to move on because this third truth is very important. It comes from verse 3, and it's what is made possible by the manifestation of the Word of life. Look at verse 3 again. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. A key word here is fellowship. The truth about God being manifested to us in Jesus is for the primary purpose of what now becomes possible. 
And that is the fellowship that is now possible through this fellowship, we can have communion with God and with other believers. That, in its nutshell, is what Christianity is all about. It's at its root. It's not about a belief. It's not about a doctrine, an idea, or religion. It's about fellowship with the living God. The joy that John is referencing is only possible through this fellowship, through this communion. How do we live triumphantly, joy-filled lives as we live in a sin-stained world? The answer is only through fellowship with Jesus Christ. One of the things that spoke to me as I studied this was the confidence of which John spoke of eternal life. It was not something he was striving for or seeking. He spoke of it as something he possessed. Eternal life was not something to attain to. It was something John already had. We speak of it in the terms of assurance of salvation. This joy that is to be complete and full and overflowing can only happen when we are assured of our salvation in Christ. Now, as we go back to talking about this fellowship, because this is the important part of this, in Scripture, fellowship has many meanings. First and foremost, it means sharing or partaking. It means that a Christian is one who has become a sharer or partaker in the life of God. Peter says it well in Second Peter 1.4, he says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. That's what fellowship with God does. It takes you out of this world and puts you into a different relationship. We used to have a relationship with the world. Now we have a relationship with the Trinity. Another aspect of fellowship, of being partakers of God, is that we become partners with Him. We share His interest and His purposes. That means we become partners and interested in partaking with Him in His plans and purposes in salvation and His purposes in the world. We see the world through different eyes. We see it through the plans and purposes of God. Third aspect of this fellowship is best described through the word communion. Sharing, conversation, closeness. God is not just a force of good in the world. He's not distant. Fellowship means close, personal relationship. Knowing God is personal. We know Him as Father. We call Him Abba, Daddy. We delight in His presence. We desire to speak to Him. We enjoy prayer. I appreciated Pastor Steve's comments today as he talked about prayer and, and how you can sense the closeness that you have to God when you have a rich prayer life. I would suggest, though, that many in the church today are strong on knowledge and short on fellowship. And I say that hesitantly, but I think, and maybe it's my years of biblical counseling that makes me cynical, but I see so many believers who struggle. They know about God. They know all the right answers. They have all the right doctrines. They can preach to you and teach to you everything there is, and yet they're popping anxiety pills and they're depressed and they, they've got this relationship problem and this is causing them to be this issue. And when you get deeper into their lives, you find out they have a lot of head knowledge, but they have little fellowship with God. 
that they are weak on fellowship, relationship, and sharing their lives with the Lord. When we are in fellowship with God, He will speak to us. We'll be aware of His presence. We will acknowledge His nearness. We will feel His encouragement. We will hear Him speak to us, not through audible words, but through His Word. He will create within us holy desires and longings. We will know how He is speaking to us. He will lead us. He'll open doors, shut doors. And we'll acknowledge He is at work in our lives. He will give us understanding. All this He'll do as we walk with Him according to His Word, the Word of life. I was reminded of the scripture that described Enoch. I've heard Chaplain John say it many times. Enoch walked with God. What an amazing statement. Enoch walked with God. I suggest to you that anyone who walks with God will be able to navigate this wretched world we live in and still have joy abundant in their life. John not only wants to prove that Jesus is eternal life in the flesh, he wants us to receive it. He wants us to receive Him, become partakers with Him, to share in that experience. Again, it's not about believing a certain doctrine. It's not about being a little better than an unbeliever. Don't misunderstand me. There are certain things we need to, that are critical to believe about Christ, but ultimately it's about a person. It's about a relationship. You cannot have fellowship with a thought or a doctrine. You can and you must have fellowship with God and His Son. The key to a joy-filled life is in direct correlation to the quality of your fellowship with God and His Son. Knowing God is key. One of my favorite books, anybody read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God? It's a great book. It's a Christian classic and it's affected many men's lives. And it's all about helping you to know God intimately. John in his Gospel in chapter 17, verse 3, says this remarkable statement. This is eternal life. Anybody know the verse? This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And knowing is that word that is also sometimes used for... It's an intimate type of that word. It's not knowledge. It's intimacy. It's talking about knowing... In fact, I think it's used in the Old Testament sometimes, you know, in the sense of, you know, Adam knew Eve and they conceived a child, something to that nature. It's a very intimate word, and that's what it's talking about. I like the verse in Job 42.5, where after going through all that he went through, all the different hardships that Job went through, he says, one of his final statements is, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. All the difficulties in his life, he knew about God. My ears have heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. He's saying, in essence, I have come into contact with you in a way that I now know you personally. I know about you ways, things that I never would have experienced had I not gone through these things. He's talking about a fellowship, experiencing God. John in this epistle is going to go on later and address false teachers and he's going to give tests for his readers to apply to their lives to make sure that they are in the faith, that they do have fellowship. That's what a lot of the rest of this book is going to be. But he starts where every person needs to start. He starts with who God is, who Jesus is, who this person is. And he says he was convinced 
And he answered that call in his own life and he accepted the God-man as to who he really was. And he's now part of this fellowship of believers and he's offering that to his readers. How many of you know a miserable Christian? (laughs) Don't have to raise your question. It's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Should a Christian be miserable? There's no excuse for that. But we all truthfully know that there's times when there's people that we don't want to ask how they're doing because they're going to tell us. And we didn't really want to hear a 30-minute story of all... Now, that doesn't mean we don't share our burdens. The Bible says, share your burdens with one another. But even in the midst of burdens, we are called to have joy. That we are not to be miserable Christians. So... As we think about the impact of this on our own lives, what are some of the things that we need to do to not fall into the trap of not having joy? What's, what's some of the impacts of this? What, what do we need to do? I'll open it up. Pray more. Pray more. I thought Pastor Steve's message went very well with this. We pray... We are in fellowship. You can't pray and not be having fellowship with God. And if we are in that constant attitude of talking to God and being in fellowship with Him, what does it do to our worldly thoughts? It pushes them aside, doesn't it? It distracts those and makes them take a second, third, fourth place. When we put God in His view of the world and we become partakers in Him and His plans and His purposes and we're praying, thinking about what what will bring God glory. As we change our attitudes about all of that, it changes us. We then become not. so, And that's really the crux of it. When you don't have joy, most of the time you're being self-centered. We're not looking at things from God's perspective. We're looking at them from what we want and what we desire. Real overflowing joy can only come from God. And the only way to have that is to be in close fellowship with Him, partaking in His divine nature, sharing in His work and plans and purposes, communing with Him on a deep and personal level. So if you find that your joy is not where it should be, then you need to examine your walk with God. And you need to make it your goal to grow closer to Him, to pull away from the world's attachments and your fleshly desires and to allow Him to be your heart's desire. The world, according to 1 John, the world is passing away in all of its lust. And lust means desires. And that's at the heart of what causes us problems is that we sometimes kind of migrate to the world's desires and those become more important than they should. When we stay on thought and on process and in relationship with God and His Word, then everything else, perspective, takes its place. As I was thinking about this, as I was getting to the end of my message, I thought about the song, and you all know the words, Turn your eyes to Jesus. Oh, so are you weary and troubled. No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So true, those words. 
You'll never have an overflowing, abundant joy in your life if you're navigating this sin-stained world on your own. John found out this truth as a young man and he never lost his exuberance for it. And he reminds us today through this written word that we can and we should navigate all of the crazy stuff that's going on in this world. We can navigate it and still have an abundant, joy-filled life. And it's made possible by knowing the truth about who God is, what He revealed and manifested to us, and, and the fellow, what He made possible through fellowship with Him. We stay in fellowship with Christ and all of the world's problems and issues take a, a different view in our lives. We can rise above it. And I think if, if nothing else, we've all seen over the last couple of years the turmoil that kind of has gone on in our culture. And it, I, mean, I got to head where I had to quit watching the news so much. And if you take it off the TV and start reading Scripture, your attitude will change. This is all part of God's plan. Everything that's going on has not caught Him by surprise. None of the difficulties that we're going through. And, and there's real difficulties. You know, what Brian's going through is a real difficulty. All of us have real difficulties in our lives and yet we can still maintain a joy because we are part of communion and fellowship with Christ and his family and we can rise above everything else because we know the living God let's pray Father thank you for this time together this morning and Lord I pray that through my feeble words and attempts at trying to share John's vision Father, that your truths will come out and affect all of us in a way that will help us to really not be distracted upon by all the difficulties that are going on around us and the turmoil around us in our culture today. May we continually focus on fellowship with you and, and living out our lives, Father, according to your plan for us and being partakers of your kingdom and sharers in the gospel and those around us and father we know that we are all of us who are saved are much part of we are part of a much bigger scheme than just uh, the few years we have on this earth father and we just look forward to eternity and all that you have prepared for us and may you continue to sanctify us and grow us in your grace as we move towards the fruition of your plan we pray all these things in jesus name amen